And when he, meaning the second son, traditionally called the prodigal son, came to himself. Now that in, that in its own right, in the real world, is not only rare, but it is a miracle, and it can happen. Just pause and pray. Let someone come to themselves right now, Lord. In the name of Jesus, let them come to themselves. I pray, Lord, wherever they are in this whole world, let them come to themselves. I submit that part of the great revival is going to happen and no one's going to be baptized because they've already been baptized. They're just coming home. <laughs> yes! I'll read. And he said, now this is the rationale of the flesh. This is what, this is the corruption that's born from guilt and shame and embarrassment. And he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare? I perish with hunger. Now he's going to equate himself with the lowest in his father's house. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, dad, father, I've sinned against heaven. That's it. That's all he had to say. And before thee. Now he's going to sink back into guilt and shame, embarrassment, self-degradation. He's going to utter words that are not in the vocabulary of the kingdom. And he's going to say, I'm not worthy. Now, I want someone to raise their hands if you think you are worthy. Who is worthy here? When did you get worthy? How did you come? Did you come worthy? Are you worthy now because you've been serving the Lord? Are you worthy now because you found the truth? I want to submit to you, you've never been worthy. You've never been good. There's only one good save God. I'm still not worthy on my own, only through the blood of the Lamb of That's it. Amen. I can't even hardly get through the scripture. I feel like jumping and hurting myself. <laughs> I'm no more worthy. Just make me a hired servant. He arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion 
and ran and fell on him and kissed him. And I preach today the disposition of restoration. Amen. And everyone said in Jesus' name, you may be seated. When you get seated, clap your hands unto the Lord. Out of your mouth, shout some great thing that God's done. You are a great God. Do that one more time because I feel like we ought to open up our spirits now. I am compelled to say to our church, to this church, and to anyone who's watching or anyone who's paying attention, that while we have come for the word, perhaps the preaching, that's not why Jesus has come here. He is the word. He's given the word. The Lord has come for the worship. He is under... Jesus is under the impression that we have all come to see him and to worship him and to praise him. Not just for what he has done, but for what he is doing and what he will do. He is doing something. He is doing great things. The question remains, will we praise him for what he's doing even if it's not done? How long ought we wait until we give God thanks? Is it at the beginning? Is it in the first quarter? Is it halfway through? Ought we wait until it's all completed before we shout out? How long should we wait until we give God a great sound of praise for what he is doing? Mine is not a rhetorical question. I'm really asking you the question. How long are you going to wait until you thank him and praise him for what is not done? But why are you waiting for it to be done? I submit to you that the moment we prayed that someone would come to their self, that moment there was a heavenly host, a dispatching of angels that would implant a seed in the mind of somebody that's out there who's wallowing, who's struggling. You ought to just thank God that the ministering spirits have gone forth and the prayers of the Most High God, the saints of the Most High God is effectual, it's working, something's happening. We're going to praise him for what he is doing. Yes. I have to gather myself because the scripture is going to, it's exploding in my spirit. 
And I'm, I'm presenting a disposition, an attitude that we have to have. It's something's on the line here. It's, a, it's the call of the moment of the age. I'm reading the Bible, and I have several Bibles, but the Bible, my Bible is broken up into segments, even the chapters. There's, there are descriptions of the moment that I'm reading. It is interesting to read the commentary of the Bible given by men who are not filled with the Holy Ghost. I've had to constrain myself lest I become bogged down in the mire of headings and descriptions and commentaries, many of which are written by men who don't even know that Jesus is God alone. Because if they say that he's the second person, which is not in the Bible at all, never has been, then I'm leery of what else they might think the Bible is telling me. Because I know from the scripture that Jesus is the incarnate God. I know that Jesus is the only name whereby we can be saved. Not a title, not a manifestation, but the name. And I know as Paul wrote, there's just one Lord... There are not four or three are subjective baptisms, but there's one Lord and there's one faith and there's one baptism. I know from the scripture that Jesus is the only one who sits on the throne. He is the father according to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. He is the son according to Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. And he is the Holy Ghost according to John chapter 14 verse 18. All power is given to him in heaven and earth. And he said in John 1 3, all things were made by him. And without him, Jesus was not anything made that was made. So when I read the commentaries about the Bible, which was written by men who were, and I quote, the Bible was written by men who were moved on by the Holy Ghost to write it. And then I consider the commentaries by men who themselves are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. I have a hard time receiving what the Holy Ghost is saying if they're giving me comments Though they don't know the Spirit. And I didn't just make that up. That comes from Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read it to you. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know, the natural man, know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. Let me read it in the NIV. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you don't have the spirit, it's difficult to understand. So when I open up my Bible to Luke chapter 15 and these three parables explode out, I, I see the teachings in, of the Lord and I, I see an inserted heading telling me that this parable is about a wayward son, which is entitled the parable of the prodigal. When in reality, it is not the parable of the prodigal. This is about the nature of Jesus Christ. And it's about the mercy of the Lord. It's about the restoration 
of God, not about the self-realization or self-recovery of the wayward son. And that is what many pulpits are preaching today. They're talking about self-recovery and self-realization. You can't even realize God without God telling you who he is. In him you live, you breathe, you move, you have your being. (laughs) I'm glad that the second son came to himself. And I'm telling you, it's an awesome thing. And I'm glad that he got up from the confines of the swine. And I hope that people and pray that people will wake up and take a step toward God. But it was Jesus that set you free. And Jesus that brought you out. And it was the Lord that gave you hope. He is the one who delivered you and restored you and made you new. The prodigal took a step in the right direction, but the father ran. (laughs) You take one step, he is on a full out sprint just to get to you. You didn't get here because you woke up and said, I'm going to get my act together. That thought came to your mind, coming to yourself because the world is bankrupt, has nothing to offer. And you remembered that there's no place like the father's house. But when you came, you didn't come free. You came bound. And it was the love of God that untangles the web of our life. So when I read the parable, I'm gripped by the deeds of the father, not the coming to of the son. The story is about the character of the Lord, not the carelessness of a wayward child. That son has squandered the life savings of his father. That second son is pompous and arrogant. He's full of lust, thinking that function, that the function of the farm, hear this, is merely mundane duties, which in turn keep him from the good life he could experience in the world. He thinks that all of this, it's just keeping him back. And that if he could break free from this, he'd have a lot of fun. (laughs) He doesn't realize that what he's keeping is keeping him. So he's looking beyond the borders of the father's house. Not knowing that he is blessed because who he is connected to. Much like Abraham's nephew, Lot, who also was blessed because of who he was connected to until he opened up his eyes and he went to a place that would come to devour him, not knowing that it was never about him in the first place. It's the second son who asked for his inheritance long before the appointed time. He he wanted the blessings of the house, hear me, without living in the boundaries of daily disciplines. But his is a voice of impatience, little understanding of the value around him. He's brash. He seeks for a gift to be given, which should have come after the passing of the father. It should have come with sorrow and tears. But he gives no regard for the labor of his father, and he asks for his portion long before its time. And the second son is cast in that dim light of immaturity and flagrant living. He goes out into the world. He develops friends, which are not truly friends. They are just friends because they can take something of him and from him. And he spends, finally, very little time working for the things that he has acquired. 
And yet now he will waste it in a place that specializes in consuming the labor of another. The scripture calls his lifestyle riotous living. Reckless abandon, unmanaged, a flippant, unbridled life. No boundaries or borders, no rules apply. Just the sound of the insubordinate, the clanging noise echoing from a careless heart. He walks with the stride of a prideful gait. And then he spends it all. He blows through the years of work, not of his own making. Any measure of wealth he came, it came from his father, that he had came from his father. Anything tangible to spend or to use came from the intensive labor of so many people before him. It was all about his father. Even the willingness, hear me everyone, to allow the son to error. Even the willingness of the father to allow the son to fail, to be lost is yet another divine lesson. And that's a hard pill for people to swallow. Paul said once that he turned them over for the destruction of their flesh, that they might be saved in the day of the Lord. Because for some, they will not love the boundaries until they squander the gift. Jesus is speaking in a depth difficult for our age to comprehend and even more difficult to receive. But there was an allowance of failure when the blessing was rejected. Please notice, however, that the father never left the house. The work continued. The labor moved forward. Calves and cattle and sheep alike all needed tending. If grain or wheat was their seed, then they still needed to be cut and gathered as the harvest before them. Tables had to be cleaned. Olives had to be pressed. Oil had to be refilled. And while all of it can be understood, though not explicitly written in the Bible, we can safely assume that the days turned to months and months probably moved to years. The time is left unknown that the inheritance gained and lost was significant because it came from the father of wealth. In the end... That riotous lifestyle took every tangible thing and almost every good thought. There was just one memory left. And that memory came back to that son. And it forced him, it caused him to get up and start walking home. He didn't clean up. He didn't work on himself. He didn't straighten up. He didn't get readjusted by himself. He just headed in the right direction. And that's it. No words, no shower, no, 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 no evidence. He didn't try to fix himself and get himself together. He just headed in the right direction. And it caused a disposition in the father's house to change. And I ask you, how long are we going to wait before we rejoice? Because the key portion of the parable is not the conduct of the son or the indifference of the elder. key portion is not a cruel world and the reality that will ruin everything about you but the key of the verse is this but when he was yet a great way off daddy was watching for him and daddy said I see him he had long way off and he ran 
Let me tell you why he ran. He ran, not because his son had it together, but he recognized my boy is headed in the right direction. That's all I needed. I just needed to step in the right direction. That was the boys thinking. He thought, I'll just return as a servant. When in reality, the great truth is this. The father doesn't accept servants. You can only come back as a son. The father has no servants in the family. The fact is so profound that the religious aristocrats, even in our day, then and our day, struggle with this. I wish it weren't so, but people are still upset and are going to be very upset about 11th hour born-again believers. Last-minute believers... Watch it. Right before the Lord comes, there's going to be an influx in the church of people who have no idea that the Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament. But they're going to be, they're coming in. They're going to be baptized in the spirit and baptized in the water and headed in the right direction. And that's it. So I say to all the saints, don't get upset. Don't get jealous. Don't get angry. The Lord's coming back and there's going to be a mighty harvest at the 11th hour. If I'm reading my Bible right, the 11th hour revival is going to be greater than all the hours. It's going to be larger than all the times. It's going to be more profound than everything. In fact, the 11th hour, people are coming, and they're going to take your seat. Can you stand in the back? Can you stand on the side? Or will you say, well, listen, you know, I've heard all that before. You ought to hear it again. In fact, I'm, I'm submitting a disposition of the house. Yes. Jesus didn't tell us that the son had to know everything. Do you know how many nuances every religion, every church has? The unwritten rules. Have you ever watched baseball? There's unwritten rules in baseball. They're not written. But if you break them, a fight will happen. It's not illegal, but a fight will happen. If the pitcher thinks you're standing too close to the plate, he can brush you off. Uh-huh. And if the pitcher hits the batter with the ball, because the batter could have hit a home run, he'd rather have him on first base. The next time, the bottom of the inning, the other pitcher gets up, and it's his job to also hit the other opponent's batter with the ball it's not in the rules and then here's what happens in the rules now the referee the umpire comes out and says I'm warning you you know if you're the next guy up you're going to get beamed with a 100 mile an hour fastball there are nuances everywhere and we got them so set in stone we think they're in the bible 
That's just not how we used to do it. I'm going to tell you something. When you have revival and new people are walking in, you might as well throw away all the unwritten rules and just get back to the Bible. If it's in the Bible, I'm going to tell you we're going to follow the Bible. We're not going to follow what everybody else did because there's going to be a great and mighty harvest. I want to just speak to one or two people because I think there's only two here, but I don't know who you are. You're, you're, you're kind of like a Pharisee. You're always kind of picking on everybody else and thinking everyone else is doing bad and doing wrong and wondering why they won't straighten up and why they're wearing that and going there and saying that and acting that way and won't sit down and won't do this and that. I'm going to tell you, but if your son or daughter starts to come back to church, the first thing you say is just have mercy on them. Just let, just let them be. Just let them be. Just let them be. Just let them be. All of a sudden, all of a sudden your disposition changes. Why? Because someone you love, you know, they're struggling. They just need a place to be loved. And, and that's what people say to me. Just love them. Oh, are you the same person? that was critical of everybody else why don't you just put on the disposition right now we're going to love them all we're going to bring them all in we're going to give them all a place we're going to invite them all in if they're just heading in the right direction (laughs) help me pastor and the father didn't wait But instead, watch now, I know I'm provoking you, and that's my job today. I'm provoking you to rejoice. Instead, there was immediate rejoicing. No mention of paying his father back. No going over all the hateful things that he'd done. Never talked about, hey, you know, You really made a mess of your life. I worked really hard for that. Instead, it followed the precedent that happens in heaven. You pray it. Whatever happens in heaven, let it happen on earth. That's the prayer. We all know it, but very few of us know what's happening in heaven. So let me read to you what happens in heaven. Luke 15, 7. Jesus said, I say unto you, for all of you people who like colors, this is red letters. The apostles wrote in red letters. They got, put the black ink down, they put the red ink in their hand. No, they didn't. They just wrote, but just for you, in case you only love the red letters, this is the red letter edition for you. Jesus said this, likewise, joy shall be in heaven, not when they understand the Abrahamic covenant. Not when they're baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Not when they join the choir. Not when they get a position. But just all they have to do is just repent. And there is something that happens in heaven. One step in the right direction. And what does the church do? We're not waiting for the whole thing to be done. God is doing great things. You may be seated. A mother in the church came to me years ago, many, many years ago. Many years ago. She had been praying for her child, her son, who was older. I think, I I can't remember his age. 
she would often tell me about his lifestyle. It was abhorrent. And he had walked away from the Lord in his teenage years. And he, he said, I don't want to hear the Bible, Mom. Stop quoting me the Bible. I don't want to talk about God every time I come over to your house. And she told me on occasions that he didn't want anything to do with the Lord. She cried and prayed and she fasted a little bit for him. He said, Mama, I don't want to hear a preacher preach, much less you preach to me. But there were many prayers prayed for him. And one day, she came to church smiling. She called me over. Something happened, and I wanted to know. Because her spirit was not down any longer. And her spirit was lifted up. And I just knew, man, I knew something great had happened. And I was ready for the big finale. And I said, tell me, what is it? And she said, it's about my son. And I said, I know it's about your son. Tell me, what is it? She said, I asked him again if he would come to church with me. And guess what? I'm ready. Come on. I'm thinking, man, they had a Holy Ghost move in the living room. I'm, I'm thinking that the whole angelic host, everybody came over, revival in the neighborhood. I said, what happened when, he, when, you, when you ask it? She said, he didn't say no. <laughs> Woo! I ain't waiting to rejoice. He didn't say no. Why? Because you want to see it all? You just put one foot in the right direction. I know God is doing something great. (laughs) Watch now. This is what the Lord spoke to my spirit. The absence of rejection is the first step between the reality of acceptance. Tell me, someone, how did David bring back the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem? Maybe see. How did he do that? Well, he he had excitement, but he had no knowledge. He had enthusiasm, but, but he had no direction. He was just excited that finally he had his third anointing and he was now the king of all of Israel. And now there was a united kingdom. That the first anointing poured on his head by the great prophet Samuel, standing in front of his brothers, all of them angry, bewildered, thinking he wasn't qualified. And the second anointing that happened in Hebron seven years prior by the elders there, but still a divided area. And finally, finally, after all that time, he is now made king, anointed by all the people. Everybody recognizes him. And the first thing he thinks about, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, because he's excited. He goes to get the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark had been stripped from the people. It was stolen by the land. It was, it was given up in battle. Carnal men had led them. It was gone decades as Israel muddled through, the, through life without the presence of God. It was held in Abinadab's house for 20 years until David went to get it. But when he went to get the Ark and bring it back, realized that he didn't know how to carry it 
and death happened. And he went back home and studied, how do I transport the ark? And it took three months to figure it out. So the next time David went to find the ark, he and his men were careful. They put the staves back in. They put it on the shoulders of the Levites. And here's your Bible. Every six paces, they stopped and they made a sacrifice. All the way from Obedidim's house, all the way to Jerusalem, there's a trail of blood. Every six paces, they stopped and they made a blood sacrifice. But in between the sacrifice, David danced and rejoiced. This is how he carried the ark back to Jerusalem with praise and with sacrifice. Praise and with sacrifice. He did not wait until he walked through the gates of Jerusalem to start the dancing. That was the massive rejoicing. I mean, when he got there, he danced his outer robe off. He lost his identity. He didn't look like a king because the robe that he was wearing fell to the ground as he began to worship. He danced all the way and made a sacrifice. They were worshiping. When they got through the gates, they began to praise like they had never praised before. And now everybody worshiped together. They carried the Ark of the Covenant all the way from one house to the final sanctum. And when they got in the inner sanctum of that city, There was great praise and a shout. Let me say it again. They carried the Ark of the Covenant. And they praised and they sacrificed till they got to the gates of the city. And if you're reading your Bible, don't think that that reference is just about David, Jerusalem, and a golden glowing Ark. The truth is, you are headed to a new Jerusalem. And... We're not carrying him. He's carrying us. And all you've got to do is pause and make a sacrifice. And in between, you give God praise all the way home. And he'll carry you all the way home. And if you are waiting to rejoice... Let me just tell you today, you don't have to wait to rejoice. Now is the time to rejoice. This is the day to give God praise and thanks. You took a step in the right direction, but Jesus took off running when he saw you coming. Listen. I'm not naive, but I don't know all the history and the stories, and I don't need to know. All I want to know is that Jesus knows how messed up you are. He knows the level of your dysfunctional family. He knows that some of you put the fun in dysfunctional. He knows that you don't like her, and he don't like you, but you're still married. Some of you are still contemplating. We're just together because we have the kids. Some of you are wondering, I'd like to divorce him, but then I wouldn't have retirement. Some of you are just angry and say, what did I do? He turned out the wrong way. I thought I could fix him. You never fixed him. You were the dummy. He's never going to be fixed, but you're there. Some of you have children and you're trying to figure out what's wrong with them, not knowing it's you in the first place. 
trying to jump from house to house and trying to figure out what to do. You're discontent, always unsettled, not having the knowledge of how to just have peace and love in God. You're messed up and you come to church and you clap, but you're still feeling kind of messed up. He knows exactly what's going on in your life and he does not condemn you for it, but he loves you for it. And the moment you took a step in the right direction, Jesus came running and he said, I'm going to help them. I love them. I have compassion on them. Hey, he saw you a long way off. Here's how I know. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He saw you a long way off while we were yet sinners, while we were still messed up. He got on the cross and said, I see them 2,000 years in the future, and I'm going to get on the cross. And when Jesus was speaking, he's talking in third person because he's talking about himself. And he's talking about all the people, the wayward nation of Israel. And he sees the sun walking back. And the Father has compassion. He's so far off. The second son doesn't see the father because he can't see him. His eyes are clouded with the philosophies of the place where he came from. He doesn't even know how he'll be received. He's thinking a hired servant, just a little bit of food. He knows where the back rooms are, where there's cots or all the servants sleep. He's thinking about getting up and just going through the duties. He doesn't know the heart of his daddy. He don't know it. But when his father sees him, long way off, how could the father see him? Why would it be that day? It leads me to know, I, I cannot prove it, but it leads me to think at least that the father's been looking every day. He was watching for him to come. He was holding out hope that something was going to happen. Maybe he went to the housetop. Maybe he climbed a ladder. Maybe he got in a tree. But he's been looking a long time every day, every day, every day. One week, two weeks, three months, one year, two years. He's been looking every day because he thinks one day my, my boy's coming back home. He's going to come back home. And when he was a far off, long way off, all messed up, he didn't see him in his condition. He said, that's my son. That's my son. And the moment he got to him, this is what the this is what the Lord the incarnate God is trying to say he turned to everybody and he cried out let's have a party it's time to rejoice go get the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and get that calf it's the fatted calf someone tell me why do you have a fatted calf the fatted calf, one of the farmers told me this years ago, 
if you want the best meat, he said about three or four months before we butcher the calf, we bring him into this corral and we feed him all kinds of different kinds of grain. And we make sure that that calf is, that calf is right and the meat tastes good and the steaks taste good. And we prepare months in advance before and, 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 and the other calves, but, but if we're going to, if we're going to have that beef, we're going to have those steaks, those steaks are going to taste good. They're going to be good. I'll tell you what the father was telling us. He was always preparing for a party. He said, get that calf and separate that one that's going to be the fatted calf that calf someday my boy's coming home we are going to prepare this is the disposition of the church the disposition is we're getting ready 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 for everybody we're getting ready with seats we're getting ready with sound we're getting ready with music we're getting ready with property we're getting ready with worship we're getting ready with prayer we're preparing the fatted calf I just want to read this. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Now here's our portion. Ready? It's the last little sentence. It's the la- if you'll do it, if, hear me everybody, if you'll do it, it's going to help you. And they began, everybody, to be merry. They didn't wait for the steak to cook. They didn't wait for the sun to take a shower. There was no season of inquiry or time of reflection. He didn't have to have the right words. It was just the sight of the sun that caused the father to say, we're going to have us a merry party. Get the calf, get the ring, get the robe. We're rejoicing. Look, look in your scripture. Paul writes mostly in succinct form. He writes to the churches which have been established. He writes kind of in order to the brethren and leaders. And it's almost always flowing with connected thoughts. But sometimes Paul writes in, in terms I call Paul's bullet points or the bullet points of Paul. They are concise thoughts within one verse. Uh, there, there's nothing before it. There's no, nothing after it. There, there's no explanation after. There's no, no setup. It's just a bullet point. And here's one of them in Philippians 4 and 4. It's just a standalone commission and admonition and maybe even command. Paul writes this. Rejoice in the Lord always. There's no setup for this verse. There's no prerequisites. He didn't build us up to this point. He just goes right to the top of the mountain. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And if that's not good enough, and again, do it again. And rejoice. Rejoice that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice if you got breath to praise him. Rejoice because of what he has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. Just do it again. And if you can't find a reason... Make up a reason. And if you can't find that, just do it anyway. You just act like you're happy. You just, you just pretend and act like this is the most awesome thing that ever happened to you and be thankful and bless his name. Be grateful and magnify him. Jesus is ready to make a trade for all of you. You've been struggling, but he has, has a trade for you. He wants to trade that, that spirit of heaviness for the garment of praise. He has outfitted you. It's bespoke material. It's a bespoke fit just for you. The garment of praise is for you. So I say today, rejoice. And again, I say, Rejoice!
He's doing something. He's doing something. He's doing something. He's doing something. God's doing something right now. He's doing something. Just stand right now to your feet and begin to clap your hands and rejoice in where you're standing and give God the great praise that's due his name. One more time, do it again. I say rejoice, and again, I say rejoice. Jesus is in the clothing business today. He's got some new clothes for you. He wants to trade all of that heaviness that you've been living with and all that junk you've been going through. He wants to take away that spirit of heaviness. Here's the Bible. He's going to give you the garment of praise. All you have to do, watch pastor, step in the right direction. And when you make a step, he's going to come running to trade you. Come on right now. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I know you're doing something great. I knew you're doing something great. Lord, would you just plant the thought about how good the Father's house is in the mind of someone that's not here today? Would you just send the thought and let them come to themselves? Wait one second. Wait one second. Who believes that God can send a word, a thought, or a message to people that are not? Who believes that? I I really want to know. Do you believe that God can do that? Do you believe that he will do it? We're going to pray that he will do it. And then if he does that, we're going to rejoice because he has done what we've asked him to do. It's in his heart anyway. It's his nature anyway. And then we're going to rejoice because out of that rejoicing, we're having a disposition. And that disposition is one of restoration. All right, right now we're going to pray. Now you speak the name of the person you want God to send a word to. And you say, Lord, right now, I pray right now, let them have a memory that the best days, the best service they've ever been in. Let them feel one more time your precious spirit. Let them recall the beauty of your love and the wonder of your mercy. Let them recall the moment they were baptized, the moment they felt you. I pray right now, let those words go out so they can come to themselves in the name of Jesus. Now listen, saints, if you believe that God did that, you ought to rejoice because of what he's doing. Don't wait. 